Would you bow your head with me as, um, as we pray together today? Lord, um, I'm just so thankful for uh, this family, this community of faith, for, for the reality that you welcome us and, and you meet us wherever we are on the journey, whether we're doubting, skeptical, or whether we're deeply committed. We know that you see us and you meet us right there. And uh, so I just pray to today um, these words uh, that I speak and this reflection that we uh, give on your uh, servant Paul's letter to the church at Philippi long ago. We just pray that this is truly useful um, and enables each of us, God, to live in a, in a way that's further in the direction of the good that we know you have in mind for us. Uh, for this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Alcatraz, the Bastille, Guantanamo Bay, the Gulag. In every season and every culture, there have been these places to which powerful empires sent the people that they most wanted to be rid of. And in first century Rome, the Roman Caesars had such a place. It was a subterranean dungeon, two levels below the ground. It was a transformed well, a cistern, that became known as the Mamertine Prison. The Mamertine prison required that you leave behind the sunlight of the world as we know it, enter into a building, make your way down a set of stone stairs, and into a, a pretty good-sized chamber that was more or less a guard room. It would have been a place that there would have been Roman soldiers in, heavily armed, and they would have had the single task of guarding a, a hole in the stone floor. And, and the stone floor... Uh, floor hole was covered up by an iron grate, and it was down into that hole that the Romans would lower the lowest of the lowlifes that they wanted to be rid of. And it was there in that dark, dank hole in the floor of the world that the man who wrote most of the New Testament, who um, wrote this letter to the Philippians that we've been studying just started studying last week, it was there that he spent his very last days of life. And this is his context when he writes to uh, the Philippian Christians in the first chapter of the famous letter, I am in chains for Christ. He was literally chained to a stone pillar you can actually still see today if you go to that place. I visited that particular cell many years ago, and it is really hard to do justice to the contrast between that environment in which Paul spent his last days and the environment that would have been there several floors up during his time. The Mamertine prison stands immediately adjacent to the Roman Forum. 
In Paul's day, that forum was one of the must-go-to destinations of the world. It actually was a dream destination for most people because they could never actually afford to go there. But if you could, it was on your bucket list to visit the Roman Forum. It was a sprawling mall of shopping shopping arcades and, and pillared walkways and avenues that stretched all the way down through the city to the spectacular Roman Colosseum at the end of the avenue. On the Palatine Hill that overlooked the Roman Forum, there were the spectacular mansions of of senators and of military heroes, and they would be able to walk out onto onto their garden landscapes and with the sound of the babbling fountains behind them, survey the valley below and the forum with its marbled temples and its magnificent monuments to the imperial power and glory that was Rome. Places like Bel Air and Monaco only reach for the glory that was Rome at its height. And this was the environment that that Paul spent his last days next to. Last week, uh, Tara Beth Leach, one of our preaching pastors, described how every culture has got some picture of what glory looks like. You know, every culture comes up with its own picture of this. She quoted the observation of Calvin University professor James K.A. Smith, who said that to be human is to be animated and oriented by some vision, some vision of the good life some picture of what we think counts as flourishing, thriving. As Tara Beth said, in American culture today, the good life is often pictured in terms of of upward mobility, in terms of rising celebrity, in terms of this ladder uh, toward success out there someplace that all of us are constantly being urged to, to, to go after. Flourishing gets gets described in Instagrammable images of beautiful vistas and, and marvelous vacations and sparkling uh, dinner scenes and all of these other great, great pictures. And we're always being called to pursue that vision. It's the obsessive, dominating vision of our time. It's there in the television advertising. It's on the internet. It's in the magazine spreads. It's everywhere around us, this call to pursue that place, that magnificent forum, Palatine Hill, our version of these things. Are you with me? Do you see that? Do you feel that, Paul? It's always there. From the depths of the Mamertine prison, Paul would have been extremely aware of that life. Um, He would actually have, from that prison cell, been able to smell the fragrance of of the marvelous foods that the vendors up in the forum were were cooking. They would fill his nostrils, though he couldn't get to any of it. He would hear the the voices of of the affluent shoppers going up and down the forum. He would hear the cries of the merchants. He would hear the distant roar that came from the Colosseum down the avenue. And as he sat there, chained to that pillar in that dank, stinking hole in the floor of the world, it would have only been human nature, I think, for him to have wondered, 
did I choose the best life? Did I make the right call? When I made the decision that I would exalt Jesus above all, instead of pursuing that path of self-exaltation that, that this Roman civilization is all about, did I make the right decision? Do you ever wonder about the nature of your call? About the decisions you've made, about the path that you're on? Truth be told, um, back when Paul had been known as Saul, he'd already tried that path. I don't know how much you know about Saul before he became the famous apostle, but, but we know that he came from a city called Tarsus. He was born there. He grew up there. It was a very, very prosperous city that was located on the southern coast, right near the coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. At that particular time, Tarsus had the most prestigious university in the world, in the known world. It was an incredible place of education and affluence, and and likely Saul was caught up in that lifestyle. In fact, by events unknown, Saul's father had actually been awarded a Roman citizenship, which was an extremely coveted credential. It was a passport to success. It was a validation by the emperor himself that you were my kind of person and and it would have opened doors everywhere in in that season. Apparently, Paul's dad passed the credential down to his son Saul and, and that may have been part of why Saul was ultimately admitted, uh, admitted into the number one law school of that, of that time, to study under the preeminent legal scholar, a man named Gamaliel, the leading Jewish thinker, legal thinker of that day. And after a few years, Saul left behind the law school And with this elite degree in his hand and this incredible background uh, in his pocket, in a sense, and the Roman citizenship uh, as a credential he could always pull out, this guy was instantly welcomed. He became a very uh, celebrated member of, of the Jewish Pharisaical party, which was the great party of influence, politically speaking, and religiously in that period of time. And in a very short period of time, he won a respect from them as one of the fiercest prosecutors of that time. And he was prosecuting a particularly, all kinds of troublesome elements in the society, but one of the most troublesome elements at that particular period was this little religious cult of the Nazarene, or what they were sometimes referred to as the followers of the way of Jesus. And Saul made it his business to hunt these people down. They were standing up against the Jewish tradition. They were offering this alternative way of understanding God and living life. And so he went after these people. He would find them. He would arrest them. He would imprison them. He would see to their execution after a trial of sorts. And this was his life's passion So I hope you're getting this picture. Saul was living his best life. Now, 
Saul had it. He was on the ascendant track. He was on the up escalator. He was doing extremely well until he made a turn. And you can read about that turn in Acts chapter 9. In fact, if you've never read that, I encourage you to go ahead and read that story in the Acts of the Apostles. Um, first book comes right after the Gospels. Suffice it to say, there comes a time, I guess, in everybody's life when we have to decide actively or subconsciously what our life is going to rest upon. There comes a time, maybe many times, when we make a, an implicit or explicit decision about who or what will be exalted in our life. Who or what is going to get top billing, first priority, our energy, and our devotion. Sometimes that, that commitment changes. Sometimes it, 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 it transforms. Sometimes that transformation happens in a sudden and dramatic way, as it did for Saul on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, when suddenly Saul encounters a blinding light and the person of Jesus the resurrected Christ appears to Saul and literally knocks him off his horse. And he is blinded for a time. There's an encounter, a reckoning, in which Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And it's the beginning of, 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 a, of a transformation for Saul that's not instantaneous but progressive a conversion that utterly, utterly alters the path that Saul's life is traveling. Some of us have been through that kind of sudden turn. Maybe some of us came to faith in a, in a way like that. Um, for others of us, it's actually a much slower process. It, 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 the, light, the light doesn't just hit us suddenly and either blind or awaken us. It, it kind of, it's a slow dawning awareness like, uh, you know, the dimmer switch being turned up to high and we're seeing life more and more in fresh terms. I remember for myself when that first started happening for me. I say started happening because I think the process of conversion or another word for it is repentance, which is this turning from one path to another. This process is lifelong, I think. I think for me, it's not done. I think God's still working on me in, in all kinds of ways. But I do remember a moment when I was a young adult when I began to really see life in a different light. And up until that point, as some of you have heard the story, and I'm not going to belabor it, but just to say I, I was pursuing the path to flourishing that I might call the Roman plan or the American plan. You know, it was about the house on the hill. It was about, the, it was about rising celebrity. It was about uh, power and influence and all of that stuff, a position of prestige. And then in a time of crisis, of significant crisis, I, I, I met a group of people, followers of Jesus, who introduced me to him for the first time. I mean, I'd heard about him in Sunday school back when I used to do that. But now they introduced me to a Jesus that I had not known in a, in a way that I'd never heard described before. And I might, found myself struck by the stunning beauty of his life and the wisdom of his teaching. 
And I found myself staggered by the, the notion that he, who, who had uh, you know, no reason to do this, would have given his life for me, to pay for my sins, to give me forgiveness, a forgiveness I didn't even realize I needed. And I, and I began to, to, to research and try and understand the stunning evidence that he had done the very thing that nobody else has ever done, and that is come back from the grave defeated death itself. And because I'd just seen some people that I really loved dead, killed, lost to me from this world, the notion that there was a power in life greater than even death, greater than even the brokenness of my life at that point, really got my attention. And, and, I, and I turned off that path I was on and began by degree, by degree, by degree, by degree to look in a new direction and, and, and my vision of flourishing started to become less and less about my position and my pleasure and my fake perfection. And it became more and more about knowing Jesus and being part of his community and figuring out what it looked like to live by the way, by this way of his kingdom that was different than the way I'd been, been pursuing. I don't know which direction you're pointing right now. I don't know what your own story has been, but we all have one. It might be an interesting conversation point over lunch or after church. What kind of, where am I on that journey uh, with Jesus? Well, last week, um, as Tara Beth observed, we, we see this idea of a, a shift in vision and focus in Paul's famous statement made in Philippians chapter 1. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will have sufficient courage so that now, which is shorthand for even here in this prison hole, so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. The shift that Paul had made, uh, that Saul Saul had made, was from self-exaltation to exalting Christ, to putting Christ first in his life. And his prayer is, now now that I'm down here in this hole, I just hope I can hang on to the courage. I hope I'll have the, the fortitude, the guts, to keep going and keep prioritizing Jesus in this way so that in my body he will be exalted, whether by my life or by my death. And then he goes on and says these famous words that we quoted last week. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is to glorify Jesus in every way I know how. And and if I die, it's okay, because I'll get to be with him. Now, if you've made that turn, that change of vision in your life, then you know how freeing it can be. Uh, you find that something in you that's always been striving and straining and struggling, working really hard to kind of get yourself into that position of, of, of supremacy, that something about that inside of you starts to unclench and you start to rest. And it feels like a relief. And you start to rest more and more in God, in in his forgiving grace, instead of you having to have it completely all together, you start to rest in his constant presence with you, in his daily provision for you, in the fact that he has you in this life and he's securing your life 
in the next. A couple days ago, I, I drove to a home here in town. I, I, I sat down with a, a, a friend of mine um, about my age. Uh, she's being prepared to get married um, in a couple of weeks. And um, I'd just been at her house uh, on a retreat uh, with our board of trustees a couple days before that. But she had just been given the diagnosis she has stage four pancreatic cancer. And understandably, this was a life-rocking diagnosis. And it, and it was hitting everybody in the family and everybody that, that knows and loves her. She was remarkably serene. And I'm, I'm sure she's got, you know, stages to go through with all of this. Um, you know, who, who wouldn't? And there will be grief and there will be all kinds of emotions. But right now, she just feels with absolute clarity that Jesus has her. That he's got her in this life for as long as that life lives. That she's going to live for him every minute she has. And, and when the time is over, he's got her in the next life. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have that security for yourself? <laughs> to feel that? This is, this is the invitation. This is, this is the, the opportunity that the gospel of Jesus offers us. He, it's, it's God saying to us, you, you don't, you come to me. You don't, your identity, your security, your significance does not need to be up for grabs. It, it doesn't need to be measured by what you have or by what you don't have. It's not going to, needs to be a function of your social location or your net worth. You don't need to be uh, overly troubled by the rise and the fall of the stock market. Your, your future is not determined by whether you're good looking or athletic or smart or even physically healthy. Your identity can come from me, he says. Not from what the world says to you or about you, but from what I say about you. Your identity, security, significance can come from me. And at the cross of Christ, he says this to us. I love you this much. I love you this much, always, forever. With my last breath, I love you. Give me your sins. Give me your life. Come unto me. Give me your burdens. Come unto me, says Jesus. And I will give you rest and hope and security. So let me move into your life. Let me lift your life. Let me lift other people's lives in the Mathari Valley and in your neighborhood and nearby. Let me do that, says Jesus. Exalt me. Put me first. Follow my example. Point others to me. And you will be living your best life. Whether you're walking in the sunshine or down in some dark hole. I think that this really, in essence, is what the Bible means when it talks about the gospel. You ever heard that word, gospel? <laughs> it literally means good news. 
It's this idea that there is a basis for our security, our significance, our identity that is more dependable than the one being always envisioned in the world. Um, and, and this reorientation of our lives from the vision of the kind of worldly flourishing to the vision of the abundant and eternal life that God has for us, this, this conversion, this transformation, this, this is the constant call of the New Testament to us. This is, this is the reorientation that Paul is actually making to the Philippian church in the first century and by extension to the rest of us when he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he has done, sink in and really change your life and conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. And then through the rest of his letter to the Philippians, and it's only four chapters long, Paul unpacks some of the particular ways that we will conduct ourselves naturally, if we actually get the gospel. You with me? So I'm going to just hit one of those today in the time we have remaining. Just one of the ways that, that our conduct will be different if the gospel has settled into us. Therefore, he says at the start of chapter 2, and there's a basic biblical uh, exposition principle here that when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you have to wonder what that's there for. Because it, it, it's a linking statement. And what he's basically saying is that, you know, I've been telling you about the gospel in chapter one, therefore, here are the implications. Here are the implications. So he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit of God, if any tenderness and compassion, in other words, if who Jesus is and what Jesus has done has made any dent on you at all, then, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. And you should know that in the first chapter, he's talked about the affection he has for the Philippian church. He's basically said that when I think about you, I smile because I see the good stuff God is doing in your life. But, he, but I, but I want to be joyful when I think of you because I want you to give yourself even more to God's influence in your life. So make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, it's very important to understand what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not saying, I want you to look at the person next to you and say, I, I need to have the exact same mind as that person. No, 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 no. That's, that's a political party where everybody has to do groupthink and has to think exactly the same way or they're going to get rejected. That is not what Paul is saying. Uh, what he's saying is, I want you to have the same mind and spirit as Jesus. I want you all to focus on him and his heart and his way of seeing things. And people that do that together are called the church. The church. 
And so he unpacks it further. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. This is what it's going to look like, he says. You won't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Your life is not going to be about the constant ladder climb. It's not going to be about trying to to think better about yourself relative to other people. He says, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Paul, I think here, is recognizing that what the world is really good at doing is getting us to think in terms of I, me, mine. I, me, mine, all the time. The world is trying to turn us into consumers that think only mainly about our needs, meeting our needs, actualizing ourselves, because it keeps the whole system working nicely. It keeps everybody, you know, I suppose making money. I don't know, but it, it, that's the kind of the goal. I, me, and mine. The way of the kingdom certainly involves working, earning a living, all of those things. But the way of the kingdom is an otherward way of living, as Jesus models for us. And, and he's stressing here that conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ means turning away from the pull of the self and adopting instead an unusual level of humility, an unusual valuation of other people, an unusual commitment to advancing the interests of others. Check yourself. You walk into the church this morning, the first thought is, gosh, I wonder who here needs to be prayed for. I wonder who here needs a friend. I wonder who here I might get a cup of coffee for. I wonder who here maybe needs somebody to sit with. You know, this is the kind of mindset. Instead of, gosh, I wonder if that person would get out of the way so I can get that parking space, so I can get to that refreshment, right? I mean, this is just us. We're so I, me, mine oriented. It, it's a conversion to shift our mindset to the way of Jesus. Um, but, but this is what we're meant to do, to advance the interests of others. And that includes your spouse and your kids and your grandkids and, you know, the people you go to school with and you work alongside and, and, and at church. Uh, the person's waiting on you in the store or the restaurant. You're thinking, hmm, what's going on with them? Is there some way I can support and lift up them? So then Paul goes on and says in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And so at this point, he doesn't take for granted that the people that are listening know what that mindset is. Yeah, I think Jesus was kind of loving. He was nice to people, right? He seemed to be a good guy. Paul is out to demonstrate. He's way more than that. Way more than that. So this is what he says. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Think about this. Paul's saying, Jesus came from a place, here I am down in the dark hole, he came from a place higher than my cell, yeah, higher than the guardroom above the cell, Mm mm-hmm, Higher than that guardroom and maybe up at the level of the Roman Forum? 
Mm-hmm. Higher than maybe the Roman Forum up on that Palatine Hill? Uh-huh. Higher than that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, says Paul. I mean, we're talking somebody who was equal with God, who was in very nature God himself, and yet he didn't regard that power, that position, that privilege that he had as something to be used for his own advantage, which he could have and rightfully could have. But he instead regarded that power and privilege and position as a capacity he could use for our advantage. For the advantage of human beings. And so, verse 7, rather than simply sitting on a celestial throne saying, hey, look at me, aren't I something? And he really was something. He made himself nothing, says Paul. He made himself nothing, relatively speaking, by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. You see, in his proper state and position, Jesus was worshipped around the clock by a vast, heavenly, uncountable host of angelic beings so pure, so beautiful, so mighty that to catch the glimpse of even the tip of the wing of one of them would throw me face down on the floor in abject awe. And they served him from all eternity. But Jesus chose to leave that position and come down the escalator all the way down, all the way down, and he became a servant to human beings who kill each other randomly, wantonly, over sneakers and land and petulance and get absorbed in trivia and, and, and just are capable of such selfishness and, and ignorance. And I'm just... You know, how do we even describe that? But he becomes this servant to people. And he hugs lepers and he, and he plays with children and he, he listens patiently to people who are ignoramuses compared to his brilliance. And he watches the stinking feet of fishermen and he serves even the people who are going to betray him and abandon him. And he prays for the forgiveness of the people that are torturing him. That's how far down he descends. And, and as if this stun, stunning downward mobility isn't enough, Paul says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to death. He's the Lord of life. He's the source of all life. He's the being behind the big bang. He's the one who makes it all hold together. He is life, but he submits himself to death. How do I even get at what that means? He, the sun becomes snow. The glory becomes a grave. He comes all the way down to save us, 
to liberate us. He takes the full weight of all of our sin upon himself on the cross, and he becomes obedient even to death on a cross, the worst kind of death, the most painful kind of death the wicked mind of human beings have ever even conceived. Therefore, another therefore, therefore God. Therefore God what? Therefore, in light of what he was willing to do, God, who esteems self-demoting love as, as among the most beautiful things in the universe, exalted him to the highest place, Paul says. And he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the end of the day, and I'm kind of coming to a close here, at the end of the day, all of us have to answer the therefore clause. In light of, of who Jesus is, what he's done, who will be exalted in my life? And, and how will this show in my conduct? When Pontius Pilate and the religious authorities gave the order that Jesus was to be executed, crucified, in AD 33, they were giving their answer to the question. He was right there in front of them. He was offering himself to them. They said, they answered the question. 33 years later, AD 66, when the Roman Emperor Nero gave the order to have the prisoner Paul beheaded, and, and Peter crucified, they, the, the Caesars were giving their answer. What was their answer? I will be exalted. I, me, mine. I will be exalted. What interests, what advantages me is going to be served. That's the path the world is always blazing. That's the choice of the two roads. Jesus says there's a wide road, well-traveled road that people are on. And it's the I, me, mine road. It's the one that the serpent in the garden first called human beings to, to pursue. God had given them everything. They had a life of abundance, all kinds of potential. He said, no, it could be better. You could be God. Just, just take that fruit. And ever has it been this choice, this pull, to be the one who exalts the self instead of the one who gave us the self, uh, who is the source of our life. But you know, today, the Mamertine prison is empty, as is a certain grave outside of Jerusalem. And curiously, it isn't the words of the Roman emperors that we're reading today. Have you read any of their, their books? Yeah, but all across the planet today, it's the words of Jesus 
and the words of his followers that are being read and reflected upon. Today, we name our dogs Caesar and Nero. What do we name our kids? Mary, Peter, Paul. The mansions on the Palatine Hill, the the forum below it, they lie in ruins now. They're just a tourist attraction now. But believers, far more numerous and potent than all the legions of Rome, are gathering today in cathedrals and caves and houses and huts and heavenly realms to exalt the name of Jesus. Colleges and universities, hospitals and orphanages, massive libraries and humanitarian agencies, entire systems of law and justice and economics and innumerable human stories exist as living witnesses, even if we sometimes forget their beginnings, as living witnesses that Jesus is Lord and his life blesses everybody who let it in. So my final question to you is, where does all of this land for you and for me? You know, having heard this story today, having read these words, having thought about them, what difference does it make? What changes will it bring about? Well, let me just, let me push it a step further. When somebody cuts you off in traffic this week, when somebody butts ahead of you in line, when some boring person like me maybe (laughs) insists on your attention for too long, when, when customer service is slow or they actually get the order wrong, when somebody in your family or your workplace isn't paying enough attention to you, when there is some menial task to be done or some painful trial to be endured, when you're invited to give more or surrender more of your position, your power, your privileges for the sake of others, for the sake of the kingdom of God. In other words, when you find yourself on the down escalator instead of the ladder of success and worldly flourishing. What's going to be your attitude? What will be the actions that flow from it in that moment? Paul would say, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Conduct yourself in a manner Worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ to turn onto that path, do this, and you'll be living your best life now. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we know that you know how seductive is the pull of this world's picture of that good life. You have, however, shown us the beautiful life. You've shown us the best kind of life, the life that truly lasts, life abundant, life eternal. So as we go forth this week, would you please give us the courage and the strength we need to humble ourselves, to look to the interests of other people, to take the role of servants 
especially where there's some struggle or suffering involved in that. For you've promised, no, you've actually shown us in the life of your son that those who lay their lives down in obedience to your call shall be lifted up to the highest place. For it's in the name above all names that we pray, saying together, Amen.